Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural, with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, The Mormon Wellness Project, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States, and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great programs. Helping you navigate Mormonism one episode at a time. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Today's a special episode titled Sex Abuse, Victim Shaming, and Sabbaticals. Before I get started, I just want to quickly say you heard the promo at the very beginning of this audio. You'll notice that was different. We finally completed a renovation project of the website. There is a new website that is an umbrella site for all the programs in the host that we uh, have within our great lineup. That website is Mormon Discussions, plural, dot org. So Mormon Discussions with an S on the end, dot org. That's it, mormondiscussions.org. The old podcast is mormondiscussionpodcast.org, singular. And that website will continue, at least for the short term, as it hosts the main feed that contains the entire umbrella. We hope to continue to have that main feed where you can get all the programs in one place, like on your iPhone, uh, as well as on uh, third-party apps like Stitcher and others. But if you go to mormondiscussions.org, you'll see each of the podcasts that we host. Each of those have their own individual website that you can get to by clicking. Below that, you'll see the host. In each host, you can click on and read a, a biography. There's still some things being done. There's still some work being done. This isn't a, a completed project, but it's far enough along that we wanted to get it up and running and make it useful to each of you. If you become a premium listener, you're, you're essentially going to sign on to mormondiscussionpodcast.org, the old site, and access those episodes there, as well as continue to get them on those third-party uh, app, uh, such as Stitcher and Podcatcher and others like that. So today's episode, and um, it is March 22nd. We are dealing in the last 48 hours with this audio from a, a woman who records Joseph Layton Bishop Jr. acknowledging that he is a sexual deviant and caused some trauma to this lady. And so for 48 hours, I've been sitting and thinking and wondering and, and putting a bunch of stuff on Facebook, little tangents of these issues, trying to wrap my head around it, help you wrap your head around it, but more importantly, point to the church and say, like, something has to change, guys. Something has to be better. You can't keep doing what you've done. We live in an information age. It has changed the game. You can't pretend all is well. You have to use words and actions that show all is well. But before we get to that, I want to tell a story. I grew up on a dead-end street in northern central Ohio, so the center of the state, but then go all the way north until you get right to Lake Erie. And I lived in a, it was a, a city, and absolutely a city, uh, not a, not, you know, had some urban areas, had some uh, rural areas, but, but where I lived was in the center of town, and it, was, it really wasn't just a small town, it really was a city. And I lived on a dead-end street, and this street was about a half mile long. And I grew up in the street from the age of four till the age of 12. And on this street wasn't just my friends, but it was also my cousins, too. I had two, uh, two homes, my two uncles, who lived on that street. And so I had several cousins uh, who lived on that street with me. And as you can imagine, living close to cousins 
makes for for a really fun growing up. My dad and his brothers uh, were really close, and um, I had a chance to spend a ton of time around my cousins. They spent the night at our house. I spent the night at their house, and we were really close. My cousin that I was closest to on that street, his name was Richie, and Richie and I did everything together. And when I was 12, my parents, my parents were really poor when I was a kid. Now, I didn't know that. I go back and look at pictures, and I see the rags of, of clothes that we were wearing as a shirt and as pants or shorts. But at the time, I didn't know because my parents just loved us to death. And so I didn't, I didn't comprehend how poor we were. My dad worked for an asphalt company and for a quarry. And so he would go out in his younger days and work the, the road maintenance um, and, and work with you know projects in the city to get the, the roads down with new asphalt. And my dad would come home smelling like asphalt. It was one of these smells that even to this day, when it rains in, a, in hot southern Utah, and suddenly the smell of the road just kind of, kind of hits you. It's a it's a fond smell for me, because I, I grew up with that smell in my home, and my dad, is, but specifically was in my growing up an incredible father, an incredible father, and I wouldn't trade my childhood for nothing. Like my childhood was perfect, but my dad and my mom they furthered themselves. My mom was a nurse's aide, and she went back to school, and got her nursing license, and was an LPN. And even after that, continued her education to become highly trained in focused areas such as wound care, which has benefited her greatly now in in this part of her life as she is towards the end of her career. My dad ended up being uh, the foreman of a quarry, and he got that job sometime when I was about uh, 8 or 10 years old. And my dad just, he goes to work every day. Doesn't matter what he's sick with. Doesn't matter what's happening. He shows up. He punches in. He stays as long as he needs to. I mean, there were times where he would work 70, 80 hours a week. There were times that he would work years on end without ever calling off sick. My dad is just one of those guys. He just will do it. And he smiles and he's happy about it. He loves going to work. Like he doesn't, it wears him out. And sure, it's hard, but he enjoys it. And even to this day, my dad is almost 60 years old, and my dad still works like crazy. He lives about an hour from work today. He, today, he's, he's slowed himself down. He's not a foreman anymore. He runs a, uh, a loader and does that through the day, moving stone around for a quarry in Cleveland, Ohio. But he's about an hour away, and he gets up at like 4 in the morning, goes to work, gets there at 5, Starts working, leaves there at you know five or six, gets home at back to my parents' house at six or seven, eats dinner, goes to bed, and gets up and does it again. And that's just always been our life. And my dad and mom, don't get the wrong impression, my dad and mom have always spent incredible amount of time with us. My childhood, again, was ideal, perfect. My dad and I went golfing a lot. My mom would take me fishing. My parents would take me on hikes and, and bike rides. My my uncle would take us on bike rides and hikes. Just the ideal childhood. But when we were 12 years old, my parents had gotten to the point where they were financially far enough ahead in their lives that they didn't want to live in this tiny little two-bedroom house anymore. This tiny little two-bedroom house just wasn't adequate in their minds. And so we put a for sale sign in the yard, and our family moved away from this neighborhood that was literally paradise for me and my brother and my cousins. My cousins stayed, but their parents got a divorce. We moved away and to another side of town. But I went back from time to time to spend the night at my cousin's house. My cousin and I were still close. We partied a lot. I started drinking when I was 12 years old. I started using marijuana when I was 14. And by the age of 16, I was selling pot. I was buying it in large quantities from a coworker. And then I would split it up into smaller portions. And then I went out and sold marijuana for about a six-month period. When I was 14 and started, again, I'm drinking at this time. I start using cannabis. And I go to spend the night at my cousin's house, my cousin Richie. And he had a sister, my other cousin, Laura. And the two of them are just incredible. 
Well, we're partying one night, and we get together with other friends on the street. Now, mind you, it's just not my cousins on the street. It is four or five kids that I grow up with from the age of four till the day this event happens. These are kids that I spent hundreds, if not hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours with over the course of my childhood. These are kids I went to school with, too. These are kids I built forts with. These are kids I built igloos with. These are kids that I snuck into the county fair with. I know these kids. I know their parents. I've spent the night at their houses. And I'm 14 years old, and I go back to spend the night at my cousin Richie's house, and we're partying, and we get together with all these kids. There's four or five of us. And it's dark time. It's 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. And one of the kids knows that a girl down the street, that her parents are out of town. And it's a girl who had a very low self-esteem. Her name was Nikki. She had a very low self-esteem, and she didn't think that highly of herself. And, and because of that, she participated in risky behavior, both, both sexually as well as in other areas of her life. But I liked her. Good kid. Just making some bad choices, but so was I. And these five kids, my cousin, me, and two or three other kids, again, maybe four, maybe five, I don't remember if one of the kids was there that night or not. But these four or five kids, myself in the group, these kids start having a conversation about, hey, her parents aren't in town. She's there. Like, she's already making, you know, bad choices sexually. And of course, they're using words and language that are very different than I'm using here on this podcast. These kids decide, and I'm just, and I'm sitting back, and and you have to understand, I am, I was one of these kids that was kind of maybe just a little lower than middle of the road in popularity. I wasn't the least popular kid in the school. I was certainly not the most popular kid in the school. And I was probably somewhere in that lower, medium, you know, portion of that. And so my self-esteem wasn't that great. And I, these other kids were more leaders. These other kids were more vocal. These other kids were, had stronger wills to them in, in voicing their opinion to where I generally would sit back and be more reactive to the things they said and did, but not be the one who would put his foot down. And my best friend, his name is Carlos, and Carlos is an incredible guy, very strong leader type. We made bad choices together, but, but generally speaking, the kid did the right thing. And, and he's not there that night. He's not hanging around us. His parents wanted him to be home, and, and he lived on, in a, a city adjoining to us, but hung out with us all the time. We were at his house. He was at ours. But that night, he's not in the group, and, and I wished he was because he had a voice that, would, that others would follow. Anyway, the group makes a decision that they're going to go essentially to this girl's home and knock on the door and pretend that they're there for innocent reasons, and then they're going to sexually take advantage of her. And the moment I hear them give this voice, something inside of me says, Bill, I know you're scared to say something, but hell or high water, you're not going to let this happen. So at first I try the easy solution, which is to go over to my cousin Richie and begin having a private conversation with him as us group of kids are walking this half mile from one end of the street to the other, as these kids are deciding to carry out this act where they're literally going to try and rape her. And so I'm talking to my cousin Richie, who's a little more of a leader in this group than I am, but not the leader. And I say, Rich, Rich, we can't do this. There's no way we can be a part of this. There's no way. And I can sense in the look in his face, in the moonlight, that he's not on board with this happening, but that he's not strong enough in his will to also stop them. Like, I realize this in like a three-second look he gives, that if anything is going to be stopped, it's me. And so we get to the house, and I've I'm, I'm got so much trepidation. We get to the house, and these kids knock on her door, and she opens, and they walk in, and I can sense they're tensing up. Like, they're ready to do something to try and make this act happen. And at that point, I reach out, and I grab two of them with my hands, and I yank them back, and I say, this shit is not going to happen today. This isn't going down. 
we're getting out of here. There's no way we're doing this. I will not be a part of this. And the action is so disruptive to their nervousness already that they end up going back outside, talking to each other, and make the decision that this isn't going to happen. From that day forward, and again, I don't, I'm not, this isn't bragging. You can, you can write me and thank me. It doesn't, every human being in those situations has to step up. And there's no boasting or bragging. Like, I'm embarrassed that I didn't say something sooner. I'm embarrassed that the moment I heard it, I didn't speak up. But as I look back on my life, that moment, it changed something. Like, there's some little piece of me decided, like, I'm not going to let the little guy get picked on. Fast forward to a couple of years. I'm 16 years old. I'm working at a, a, a breakfast restaurant. They serve lunch and dinner too, but they're famous for their breakfast. They're a franchise, so I, just, I won't get into who they are and whatnot, but, but a good job. I, I start there when I'm 14 years old, when I move to this new place. The restaurant's right next door to where I live. I start there as a busboy making minimum wage at four twenty-five an hour, but very shortly, my work ethic is really good. I show up, I do the job, I do it better than anybody else. They end up taking me, who's a 16-year-old. So by the time I'm 16, they've moved me to being the baker of the restaurant and making eight bucks an hour. Now this is when minimum wage is four twenty-five, and I'm a high schooler making eight bucks an hour. Um, I'm working, so I move fourteen. I get the job. I move up to baker. I'm sixteen years old, and when I'm sixteen years old, um, a kid that I grew up with, he was on my little league team. Him and his brother. His brother was the best player on our team. Um, he was the just the we won the World Series for the, for uh, that league that year, and this kid was our best player. He was our pitcher. He was our shortstop. Batted, uh, I don't remember what it was, but you know, six ninety three. Um, had a home run. Second in the team in RBIs. I led the team in RBIs with thirty two, but I my batting average was only around like three twenty. And I batted cleanup, and I played shortstop when he pitched. And I played first base when he played shortstop. And uh, his brother Brian was his name. His brother was extremely short. Good ball player. Good kid just a smile from ear to ear that could light up a room still alive i always talk in the past tense because i'm talking about these past stories but i'm working at the restaurant and brian who's the younger brother really short starts working there and he's working in the kitchen he's he's helping with cooking stuff you know he's mixing the eggs up making omelets and and just a good kid and and we weren't super super close but i knew him and i played baseball with him and i i liked him and and i would say we were friends on on that that kind of level, for some reason there's um, there's an older guy in his mid twenties losing his hair, but he's a funny guy. He a little charismatic, and people are drawn to him. And because we're all a bunch of kids working at this restaurant, and there's a lot of us, I would say eighty percent, seventy percent of the employees are high school kids. As high school kids, a lot of these kids looked up to this older guy. Again, he's in his mid-20s, so he's not, not an old guy. But to us, he's one of the older guys that works here at this restaurant. And I wasn't there in the room when this thing whole thing starts, but, but I walk in about halfway into this episode, this moment. But apparently, before I get into the, the kitchen, this 25-year-old man decides to get a rise out of the rest of the kitchen crew by bullying on this 14-year-old short kid. And it's escalating quickly where it is going to be a fight. There is shouting back and forth. And this 25-year-old gets in this little kid's face. And at that moment, I walk into the kitchen and I see this 25-year-old man in the face of this little kid who I know and love and respect. And nobody else is coming to this kid's side. I can see that in a one and a half second glance around the room. No one's coming to his side. And so like in a moment's notice, I briskly walk right behind this guy, grab him by his collar and yank him back and begin to go on a tirade in his face. And I don't know if he was scared of me because there was no reason to be in terms of size and strength and all that that was going on. 
So I don't know if it was that he was scared of me or that I had just done what was the least thing he expected to happen and as such kind of shook him into approaching the situation differently. But within a few minutes, he's apologizing to this kid. And, uh, and I take Brian aside a few minutes later. And I said, Brian, I don't know what was going on, man, but just I'm, I'm sorry that he did that. And obviously, Brian thinks me up and down, but again, there's no need to thank me. Yes, the rest of the room isn't acting, but darn it, hell or high water, someone needs to act. No one should stand by while 14-year-old kids rape a 12-year-old girl. Hell or high water, no one should stand by while a 25-year-old man beats up a 14-year-old kid. There are people in our society who are either weaker or perceived as weaker, who are marginalized. And somebody needs to stand up for those folks. Fast forward a year later, I'm 17 years old. And again, I'm making bad choices. I'm drinking several nights a week. If I'm not drinking, I'm using marijuana. We're going to parties and I'm having fun. There's no, I mean, I'm not regretting it. I'm having a blast, but I can see now looking back, like I was going down this really, this path that was going to sooner or later lead to some misery. I come from a family of alcoholics. I come from a family of, of aunts and uncles, my dad included, who drink heavily. And it doesn't make them bad people. They're, for the most part, far as I know, they're good people. Hardworking, but alcoholics nonetheless. 17-year-old me, I encounter the church. The girl I'm dating, who I eventually marry. The girl I'm dating, she's a Mormon. I'm meeting with the missionaries. It's magic. Mormonism, and I've said this in interviews and other places, Mormonism, and I mean this, Mormonism changed my life for the good. It picks me up and it sets me down in some other space where now I have so many more options and my life has so many more opportunities. The church meant everything to me. And it's this love for what the church meant to me that from my faith crisis till recently, I have hung on. It's why I hung on this long. I knew there was good here. And while the history is messy, and as information surfaces and new events transpire, it's becoming more and more problematic, I had confidence all along the way that Mormonism would adjust for the good. And in the middle of my crisis, Elder Holland and Elder Marlon Jensen promised me that it would. At 29, I was called to serve as a bishop. Somewhere along the way, I became aware that a man in our ward was accused by his two foster daughters of having molested them. They were adults now, but they had accused him of molesting them. These two women, these two adult women, they had some life issues. They had some emotional issues. I considered both of them friends, but they had struggled a little bit with life. And it became apparent to me that their struggles could very well be the repercussions of this abuse. And yet, as I'm sharing my voice on this event and trying to seek out some justice for them, I, I said, hey, my first suggestion would be, let's go to the police. And they said, no, we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. And so my next option is, as the bishop, is to sit with him and have a conversation, to go to the stake president and have a conversation, to try and see if we could at least bring about some sense of justice within the system that I did have some control over. And what I discovered was only one of these sisters was willing, and, and they were both young adults, one of these sisters was, both, was willing to stand as a witness against him. The other one wasn't. And so leadership made the point that we have to have at least two witnesses. That's how these work. And the man denied it. I mean, he was completely in denial. Didn't do this. And it's, and it's odd to me because other f individuals who I am working with above me to seek out a disciplinary court for this man, these, some of these individuals would point to the struggles that these two girls, these two women have had over the course of their life and say like, look at this, they can't be trusted and my immediate thought is that is the stupidest thing in the world because the more likely conclusion is that the abuse to these two 
led to these other behaviors? And why is it that most of the human world can't see the cause and the effect as the other way around? Like, there's been studies done. Most sexual abuse allegations are true. Not just most. Like, 99.8% of them. When you look at the data and the ways in which they can show this data and, and pull this data out, the rate of the accuser being right, being true, being, being honest about the abuse they suffered is extremely high. We live in a world where we want it to be 50-50 and we want to cut everybody a break. And until there's clear-cut evidence, we want to reserve judgment. But I'm simply saying, let's lean on the side of the allegations being true in terms of taking the allegations seriously. When November 5th of 2015 hit, you can go back and listen to the two or three episodes I did that month. I felt like I was punched in the gut. It was a kick to the stomach. Those are the kind of words that I used. Why? Sure, the, the policy sucked. And it was as unchristlike as anything I'd ever seen this church do. But when November 5th of 2015 hit, it was the first time it struck me that Mormonism appears as if it's going to resist the very changes that would create a shift to a healthy and good church. Remember, in the middle of my faith crisis, I thought to myself, this thing is going to change. This thing is good. Look at all the good it's been to me in my life. This thing is going to adjust. It's going to change. It's going to be vulnerable. It's going to acknowledge it's made mistakes, and it's going to get better. When the LGBT policy hit in 2015, it was the very first moment in my head. It literally took me 48 hours to get past this initial thought. I realized that my church, the church I love, it may not be good. It may not want to do the right thing. It may be unwilling to make the changes it needs to be a healthy and good church. So for the previous almost two years, our family has hung on in hopes that something would give way, that these leaders from Salt Lake, from the church office building, somebody would be a voice and say, enough's enough, guys. We have to stop shielding ourselves from these valid criticisms. We have to stop hiding and whitewashing and deceiving. Let's be good. Forget being true. Let's be good. And as every issue over the last two years has come to the forefront, I had hoped for accountability. I had hoped for vulnerability. And words that displayed a want to be better and to be honest to the very need this church has for a lot of improvement. I simply didn't care that our history was problematic. I don't need a true church. And I mean that. I don't need a true church. I just needed a good one. I just need a good church. And every passing day, this church shows me that it can't do that. It can't be vulnerable to that. Members like me and Sam Young and Gina Colvin were trying to have an intervention with Mormonism, and it just keeps walking out the door saying, I didn't do anything wrong. Fast forward to today, this audio surfaces regarding this MTC and mission president who's not only accused of sexual abuse, but acknowledges in the audio a deep sexual deviancy, and a history of abuse. And he does so on recorded audio. In the process of the audio omission, along with the church's official response and their continued emphasis of their perspective that they want to impose through their own outlets, such as Deseret Book, the following things have surfaced for me. Number one, Elder Joseph Layton Bishop Jr. was called to these high leadership positions as president of the MTC, as well as a mission president, and I think in Buenos Aires, by leaders like President Kimball, prophet, seer, and revelator, President Hinckley, prophet, seer, and revelator, President Monson, prophet, seer, and revelator. That data alone, if if leaders, multiple, not just one, not just one leader having a bad day, if multiple leaders are deceived Thinking a man is worthy and righteous to serve in a high calling, only to discover that he is wicked and immoral, that he has raped and molested other women. Then these men, the the spirit of discernment 
the Holy Ghost within them, and the personal visitations that they supposedly receive from Jesus himself, which they now acknowledge they don't. They're useless. They're useless. I cannot be okay with a Jesus, with a Savior, who allows this man to be called into positions of authority where he is going to abuse women in this way time and time again. The spirit of discernment in Mormonism is useless. The church, through its own official channels as well as through Deseret News, wants to focus on the allegations that she made to Elder Assay. And I don't know if I'm saying his name right. At this point, it doesn't matter. Elder Assay is dead. And the church says, look, she talked to Elder Assay. We have no record of the conversation. He's dead. End of story. Here's the problem. In the audio, it's also mentioned that Joseph Layton Bishop Jr. says he, he acknowledges he confessed his sexual sins to Elder Wells. Elder Wells, while old, 85 years old, is still alive. But you know what? 85 is not that old. Most of our top 15 leadership is 85 or older. 85 is a spring chicken for our leaders. So please don't use the excuse of how old this man is, which the church does in its article as well as Deseret News. The fact this guy's 85, I don't care. President Nelson's 93. Why does the Deseret News, as well as the church's official publication, say nothing of Elder Wells? He's still alive. Why do we not want to at least go ask him and at least acknowledge that he doesn't have a memory of it, he's got dementia, his health is bad, he can't really carry out this kind of a conversation at this point in his life? All of those are acceptable. But to completely dismiss Speaking about Elder Wells while making the Elder Assay an important point seems like that means Elder Wells has something to add to the conversation, but we're trying to pretend as if that's not a necessary point to bring up. Number three, there's a comment in the church's official statement about it doesn't have the ability to arrive at the truth of these matters because it doesn't have the tools that law enforcement has to decide such things. Bullshit. Here's why. As the church has imposed for 150 years that its leaders have the light of Christ, which all of us have, they have the gift of the Holy Ghost. By the power of the Holy Ghost, you may know the truth of all things. They have the spirit of discernment in their callings as leaders. And when it comes to the very top leaders, they've even claimed that Jesus himself communicates with them. Now, if, if Mormonism is what it claims, let me ask each of you, would you rather have the tools of law enforcement if the church is true and has all the gifts it claims to have, or would you rather have the light of Christ, spirit of discernment, gift of the Holy Ghost, and communication directly from Jesus Christ, Savior of the world himself, to know whether Joseph Layton Bishop is a sexual deviant or not. So what the church did, I think unknowingly, is admit that its tools to decide truth are inferior to the secular tools of the world. Period. Number four, victim shaming. This official response by the church at every turn says, not our fault, and even leaves the door open to this woman being the problem. That's victim shaming LDS church. It's wrong. It's not okay. What you just did in one official response on LDS newsroom is show that you will shield yourself at every turn. Let me make it, let me make it more clear. When the LDS church has a choice to do the right thing and hurt itself, or do the wrong thing and protect itself. It only has a choice between one and the other. The LDS church will choose the wrong thing to protect itself at every turn. Think I'm wrong? Name for me an instance where the church hurt its value to its tithing paying members unnecessarily when that choice did not benefit the church in some way. Exactly. Mormonism, when it is compelled into a either-or choice of doing the right thing and hurting itself, 
or doing the wrong thing and protecting and perpetuating itself as an institution, it will do the latter every single time. Number five, in the official response by the church, they acknowledge that this was brought to their attention in 2010. Strangely, not a whole lot happened. And again in 2015. In regards to the 2010. In regards to 2010, again, take away this audio for a moment. Pretend this audio doesn't exist. Does the church have the ability to deal with sexual abuse appropriately? And in this case, on this serious case, the church continues to sell this guy's books at Deseret Book. They continue to keep this guy as an active member in the ward where he's allowed to be called into any calling. Meanwhile, this man has been accused of a serious case that he later admits and acknowledges in recorded audio. Does the LDS church have the ability to deal with sexual abuse appropriately? And the 2010, them admitting this started in 2010 is a flat out no to the ability of the Mormon church to deal with sexual abuse. They don't have it, period. They don't have the tools. They admit it themselves. They don't have the tools. Holy Ghost and Spirit of Discernment are useless. They don't have the tools. And and when this case was brought to their attention in 2010, they did nothing. And now we know it was true and we know how serious it was and how high, far-reaching it was. The church lacks the ability to deal with sexual abuse. They said in 2010, this matter, they said about, I should say, they said about the 2010 bringing of this this matter to their attention. This matter was brought to the attention of the church in 2010 when this former church member who served briefly as a missionary in 1984, it feels like, and I could be wrong, it feels like they threw the word briefly in to, to plant the idea that this young lady went home from her mission early, which means she probably had some emotional issues. But let's ask something. If you were a missionary in the MTC and and your mission president ripped your dress off and attempted to rape you, might you go home from your mission early? When this former church member who served briefly as a missionary in 1984 told leaders of the Pleasant Grove, Utah, West Stake that she had been sexually assaulted by the president of the Provo Missionary Training Center, Joseph Bishop, 25 years earlier. Now, here's where the church spins. The church says they listened carefully to the claims being made, and then this was immediately reported to the Pleasant Grove Police Department, and the police interviewed her at that time. The church does not know what she said in that interview, but the church received no further communication from the police concerning the matter. This is spinned in such a way as to make it sound like the church did the right thing and did all it could do. The church did not turn the matter of abuse over to the police. The church turned the matter of the fact that this lady was so traumatized from this abuse that took place 25 years earlier that she was making physical threats to Joseph Bishop's life. And the church, hearing that threat to this male leader in their patriarchy, turned the matter over to the police in terms of the assault. The police have said that unfortunately in Utah, the statute of limitations at the time was four years and that they would have brought charges to Joseph Bishop, except that the statute of limitations had expired. In other words, the church is saying like, we just couldn't find anything to do here. There really wasn't anything. We turned it over to the police. When what the church turned over to the police was a physical threat to their, to their male priesthood leader, to this guy who had served in the upper echelons of the church in terms of being an MTC president and a mission president, And they had turned this lady in, essentially, as making physical threats to Joseph Bishop. The police said the claims were valid. They would have, the prosecutor says, we would have prosecuted. We would have made charges. We would have gone out there and done something, except the statute of limitations expired. One has to wonder, in a system like Mormonism, is there pressure to be quiet when abuse occurs, rather than to speak up because of the dynamic of authority and patriarchy? And I think the answer is yes. In other words, Mormonism creates a culture that keeps people from talking when the abuse happens. And then years later, when they speak out, because enough is enough and they can't keep carrying it, the statute of limitations expired. 
Those local leaders met with Mr. Bishop, who denied the allegations, unable to verify the allegations. Why? Because the light of Christ, spirit of discernment, Holy Ghost, and personal conversations from Jesus himself are insufficient to prove whether someone is innocent or guilty of a heinous crime like sexual abuse while serving in a leadership calling inside the LDS church. Because they couldn't come to any decision on whether he had done it or not, they did not impose any formal church discipline on Mr. Bishop at that time. In other words, Mr. Bishop, you're welcome to keep serving in the primary, the nursery, the young men's, the young women's. You can do the temple prep class for the 18, 19, 20-year-olds. That's fine. There's no reason to stop you. And by the way, let's keep selling your books at Deseret Book and see if we can make a few more dollars there too. Again, from the church's official response, the matter resurfaced in 2016 when the same individual contacted a stake president in Pueblo, California, Colorado. Sorry, And then again, now this is important, and then again a few weeks later in January 2018, when the church was contacted by a lawyer representing her, he provided a copy of a recording that she had made of a conversation between her and 85-year-old Joseph Bishop in December of 2017. Here, this is why this is important. In January, the lawyer goes to the church and says, I have recorded audio of a higher up leader in a calling that was called by the absolute upper echelon of the church. And this leader who served as the president of the MTC and as a mission president out in the field sexually abused and admits to sexually molesting and abusing and being a sexual deviant towards lots of women, certainly more than one, more than two. What does the church do in that same exact time period just days after? They propose legislation through the Salt Lake Chamber to quickly turn Utah from a one-party state, meaning that one person in a conversation only has to give permission for that conversation to be recorded, to change it into a two-party state where now everyone in a conversation has to give permission for it to be recorded, for it to be recorded and shared. Think about that. The church has audio presented to them that one of their own within their patriarchal institution has sexually abused women and admitted to it, and they quickly move to make Utah a state in which that audio cannot surface. Is that healthy? Is that the good church that we all love? Is that the Mormonism we all look to to help us guide our lives? Absolutely no. Even if the two instances are unrelated to each other, the church should know better once it heard that audio to go, you know what? We can see there is a need for such audio to be able to go public, that we would never, ever propose such a legislation as that. LDS Church, once again, please look in the mirror. You are dysfunctional, and you are borderline on committing evil. You are borderline on being a willing participant in creating and perpetuating trauma and abuse, marginalization and unhealthiness. When it comes to teen suicides because of the LGBT issue and because of the, um, the works and righteousness bar that we set, and when it comes to things like one-on-one -on -one interviews that Sam Young is speaking to, when it comes on permitting and encouraging the freedom of audio that incriminates members of our church in abuse and trauma at every turn, LDS Church, you are shielding yourself and protecting yourself instead of doing the right thing. I no longer and haven't for a long time trusted you to be good. You no longer are an authority in my life and in growing thousands and thousands and thousands of others because of things like this. You cannot be trusted to guide our lives you're losing trust daily because you're choosing to fight for this space where some members can still see you as true 
Meanwhile, you have laid being good on your own altar. Deseret Book continued to sell his books, Joseph Layton Bishop Jr.'s books, until this became a public nightmare. And then they removed them. The church continues, quote, The church as a religious organization does not have the investigative tools available to law enforcement agencies, nor can the church substitute for the courts in adjudicating legal claims. The church has great faith in the judicial system to determine the truth of these claims. First off, bullcrap. The church does not trust in the world to figure out whether it's done something right or done something wrong. Number one. Which is why the church has settled thousands of sexual abuse cases by throwing money at it. Number one. Number two. The church is saying, look, we don't have the ability to get to the bottom of this in the way that the tools that uh, the law uh, enforcement agencies do. Think about this for a minute. The church doesn't have the ability to get to the truth of a matter with the tools it has compared to the tools that law enforcement agencies have. Again, the church, if if its claims are true, has the light of Christ the spirit of discernment, the gift of the Holy Ghost, and visitations and dialogue straight from Jesus Christ himself. Number one. Number two, it also built a straw man. Nobody's asking the church to put this guy behind bars. The church can't do that. No one's asked for that. What, what people are asking is for this man to be held accountable to the fact that he admitted this Back in January of 2018, and only after this goes public, is the church actually going to sit down with this man and work towards some type of disciplinary measure. In other words, had the audio not been released to the public, but still been known to the LDS church, this man seemingly gets off scot-free. It's only when the audio goes public and the backlash begins that the church now goes, you know know what, on second thought... We're going to go revisit this with this guy, and church discipline may be essential, and and it may happen. Do you see how broken this system is? So once again, I'm I'm face-to-face with the fact that my church is not good. My church isn't healthy, and my church will never do the right thing if it hurts itself, if that right thing hurts itself. LDS Church, one-on-one interviews have to come to an end. You have a lay, untrained ministry. You call people from various walks of life to serve as a bishop. They're not qualified. They're not trained. And even if you decide you're going to train them, I don't trust the training you're going to give. What are they going to do? Watch three hours of a video on LDS.org? What are they going to do? Go into ward council and have conversations with other lay leaders? LDS Church, you're incapable of seeing the unhealthiness because you're so close to the situation. You're losing trust by the day. What has our family done? This is, this is a hard acknowledgement for me because I know so many people depend on, on my activity in the church. So many people depend on having voices on the inside. But our family made a group decision four months ago around Christmas time that Mormonism had become so toxic and it had reassured us over and over and over again that it just was not going to choose to be a good church. That we sat down as a family and we decided that we can no longer attend in the current state that Mormonism is in. Since then, we've had all this stuff with Sam Young, which has reinforced that the church has zero ability to ever acknowledge that the world is ahead of it And that the world is pointing to some unhealthiness and that pointing and that unhealthiness is valid. The church shows no ability to do that. And then this case here just shows it so clearly that Mormonism is not a safe space to be in at present. So for the last four months, our family has been on a sabbatical. And I'll call it that because I'm open, at least me as a member of my family, I'm open to returning. Some of the members of my family are not. They've left the church for good. I'm open to returning, but Mormonism has to let go of the authority that it holds, and it has to admit just how fallible it is and how unhealthy some of its mechanisms are. It has to own those, and it has to show a willingness to hear those voices outside of its leadership 
and give space for the criticism of its unhealthiness and to then make an honest effort to deal with that and to fix those mechanisms. I don't know that it can. I used to hope that it could. My hope is flickering. I don't know that it can. I think Mormonism has shown me that for at least the next 30, 40 years, it only knows how to protect itself. And in protecting itself, it's actually hurting itself deeper. Denial, obfuscation, dismissing, and distancing yourself from criticism are not healthy. Mormonism, I will forever, forever, forever be grateful that you taught me to be a good person when I was a 17-year-old kid. I will forever be grateful that you helped me to meet my wife. I will be forever grateful for the support that you, through my local ward, gave me in raising me, my wife, and my children. But I am convinced that you think portraying yourself a certain way that is false is a thousand times more important to you than being good. I'm sorry, LDS Church. I so wish you were better. I so wish you were vulnerable. I so wish you knew how to be honest. Sadly, only recently I've realized that in the midst of you teaching me to be good and helping me to be good, I didn't realize it, but you weren't good. You weren't healthy. May Mormonism fix itself. May Mormonism be vulnerable to the deep, uh, deep unhealthiness that shows itself in a thousand ways. Mormonism, I love you, but I have to take a break from you. It's not me. It's you. May the Lord warm your shoulders, everyone. God bless you. May each of you make the decisions in your life that bring you peace, that give you a safe space to be you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Shoes.